How many of y'all brought your garment of praise on tonight? Amen. Let's just stand up one more time, just for a second, and give him all the praise you can muster up in your little body. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we worship you. We praise and honor you tonight, not for what you've done, but for who you are, oh God. And we welcome you into this service tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Where the garment of praise is, where there is praise to our Lord, the enemy cannot be. You can have a seat. <laughs> Thank you all. I don't take this lightly that I was asked to do this at all. And I can tell you right now, I don't always feel qualified, but the enemy likes to make you feel that way, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. So we're not going to go that route tonight, even though I was sitting over and like, oh, God, is it too late to bail? I'm sure Jacob could really you know, give him a praise and worship service. <laughs> but no, I'm not going to bail. So <laughs> God gave me this message I, over a period of time. It's been going on a while. And he gave me this message to really just, um, it's a personal message, but I know we all go through it. And the title of the message tonight is Weapons of Warfare, and we're going to pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are who you are, and you have chosen us to be your royal priesthood, your people, your children, your warriors. Father, we thank you that you have given us this message for such a time as this. I believe it is timely. And Holy Spirit, we just pray you will have your way because they didn't come here to hear me. They came here to hear your revelation, Holy Spirit. And we welcome that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Devin. Okay. So to introduce this message, I have to define a few things, a couple of terms, okay? So I want to start out by defining um, spiritual battles and weapons of warfare. Now, most of us may have a general idea of what that is, but just for the sake of everybody being on the same page, I'm going to go into the defining these. So first, battle alone is defined as combat between two persons, between factions, between armies, and they consist of any type of extended contest, struggle, or controversy. So BibleStudyTools.com gave us that definition, by the way. Um, <laughs> so battle in the Greek is pronounced... Polymos, I believe I heard that right. Root word, polymi, whatever, P-E-L-O-M-A-I. Anyway, y'all, I did laugh when I heard this part. The meaning is to bustle. Now, I know the meaning of bustle, but it doesn't sound very threatening, does it? So, <laughs> when I, I mean, I really envision someone coming at me with a feather duster and saying, I've come to bustle you. You know, you just can't take them seriously. <laughs> so, when we're, we're thinking about bustling, we probably don't think of warfare. But um, anyway, when you look at the enemy and he's coming at you, shouldn't we kind of look at him that way? Because we have all authority over him, don't we? Amen. So, next time he's coming at you, just think of the feather duster. <laughs> like he's wheeling that at you, right? So anyway, Strong's Concordance says it's a, hold on. Okay. Strong's Concordance is a war, a fight, a battle, a dispute, strife, or quarrel. So a spiritual battle, as said in Ephesians 6.12, is our struggle is ultimately against spiritual forces of evil. Did he put the, no, okay. Um, this isn't the actual verse is our struggle is ultimately against spiritual forces of evil, meaning the real battle is the spiritual warfare of good and evil. There's a spiritual warfare that's ongoing in the hearts of man. How many of y'all see that all around you, in our culture, all day, every day? 
and, and probably in your life, there's some struggle going on between flesh and spirit, right? So most people do not like to think that warfare is something they would ever have to engage in, or at least they don't want to. We're not built, well, some of us might be, I don't know, but most people aren't built to, oh, man, I'm going to wake up and be in conflict with somebody today. I can't wait, you know. <laughs> That's not our general mindset, hopefully. Um, but we are, the Bible tells us, we are going to engage. In John 16, it says, I have told you these things so that in me you have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not maybe, not kind of, sort of. You will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So God designed us to be overcomers. If he's overcoming, if he's overcome, then he's designed us to be the same way as long as we're in him. So we must acknowledge that we are in war. As Christians, we are in a spiritual battle. Well, of some sort, regularly, in some degree of intensity. And although you may or may not be in a physical battle, God saw fit to prepare us through his word for the spiritual battles we will face. Now, during the service, while y'all are up here, even through the prophetic word, um, Yahira, through the message of tithing, everybody, there was this ongoing thread of we face something this week. There's something going on this week in a lot of people's lives that have attacked them or whatever. Well, it's not just this week, but you know what I'm saying. A lot of people have dealt with that. And so not only is this a timely message, but also the reference was the goodness of God. Yes. And we can all experience his goodness. And we're going to go over that, too. I was so excited when they sang that song about the goodness of God and people were proclaiming the goodness of God because it's going to be in this message, too, because that's what we base our warfare on. That's what the armor is. It's all the characteristic of the goodness of God, isn't it? So let's just delve into that a little bit. Um, so in choosing weapons for warfare, God lets us know what he's looking for based on what the weapons are used for. So what are the weapons of warfare? And the physical, they can be literally anything used to contend with someone or used to protect yourself. They are instruments used in fighting, an instrument of offensive or defensive combat, like guns, knives, a feather duster. A, Christian, a Christian's weapon of warfare is spiritual, and they come from God. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, and most of what I'm reading in the verses are New King James Version. I just kept it across the board. It tells us, and I'm going to read this kind of slow, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means they're not weak or worldly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, strongholds being a lie, personal bondage, casting down arguments, arguments being arrogant, rebellious ideas and attitudes, and every high thing, which is, anybody know? Pride. The devil was a good example of that. Satan was. Um, Everything, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience, as someone else previously mentioned tonight, of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You really do need to read that slowly <laughs> to take it all in. So bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
not to the obedience of my opinion, not to the obedience of culture. We start seeing victory when we are obedient to God. If we will allow this truth to be ingrained in our minds, then we'd spend a lot less time struggling with our flesh and more time living in the freedom and victory that Christ freely gave us. Now, it may not look like victory in the midst of battle. When it feels like the enemy's coming at you at all sides, it doesn't feel like victory. But the battle tends to become more intense when the enemy is exposed. Stand firm. Don't be moved. So the goal of this message, what I want to really get across and be able to do is to encourage you in biblical wisdom and understanding towards the spiritual battles we face and how to engage in them. And we both most definitely are intended to engage, not cower. He did not call us to sit passively by and cower to the enemy's attacks. We see all around us the effects of the church cowering instead of governing. We are to exercise our authority as God's ecclesia, his chosen people as the new Israel, a royal priesthood as spoken of in 1 Peter 2.9. We shouldn't be apologetic about the authority God has given us. We also see that a lot out there. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but, you know, speak boldly the truth of God. The truth shall set you free. Amen? <laughs> mm. When Jesus went to flipping tables, <laughs> he walked with authority and righteousness and truth. He, wasn't, he was resetting the temple to what it was designed for. He didn't repent of that later saying, you know, guys, that really wasn't my best moment. You might want to strike that from the Bible. It made it in there for a reason. Amen. Um, political correctness isn't what he was worried about. He wasn't passive, and he didn't turn a blind eye. He did not tolerate what defiled and defied God or his territory, and neither should we. Neither should his church. And though our battles may appear in the physical, our mindset should be to battle spiritually. If it's happening in the physical, then it's rooted in what's happening in the spiritual realm. Now, I had that reworded a little different, but our pastor kind of reworded it for me. I'm just going to say that and give him a little kudos there. And it's true. Does that mean we never act out in the physical? Well, it's clear. There's plenty of examples in, throughout the Bible. I mean, the Old Testament, certainly. Um, it's pretty clear that there's all kind of examples of when they had to engage physically. Engage, right? Does that Okay, so if we're to call out evil, what does that mean? Well, we're not to be bullies. We are to call out the bullies. Now, I've been listening to a lot of messages from Tim Sheets and Dutch Sheets. And Tim's talked a lot about the engagement of, okay, it's time to confront the bullies. Enough already. But how do you do that and maintain the holiness of God through your life, right? 
So we're going to talk about that. But many Christians, they get confused. Okay, how do we do that? And, you know, they've heard the turning the other cheek thing. That is true. The Bible says that, turn the other cheek. So what does that mean? If you're supposed to stand up against the bullies, how do you turn the other cheek at the same time? Well, first we have to understand Scripture and what that means. Many use that as an excuse to sit passively back and do nothing. What many don't understand is that there is a distinction between standing up for truth and wanting revenge. The verses of turning the other cheek is addressing the act of revenge. Matthew 5, 38 through 39. That's awfully small. <laughs> I got my glasses on. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. We've all heard that verse, right? Well, my Bible, study Bible, this one right here, explains the law of retaliation, which is an eye for an eye, and what is done to you is done to them theory, you know, was not intended to encourage personal revenge, but to protect the offender from punishment harsher than his offense warranted. Uh, warranted? Warranted, you know what I meant. Um, <laughs> so there were times when God used his army as his revenge on others. It's in the Bible, people. I didn't put it there. He has used people as his revenge on others. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not ours. Right? <clears throat> I lost my place. And then, like in David, well, actually, do you have that verse, Romans 12, 19? Yeah, it's up there, and I, I missed it. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. He has a way of twisting it around. Be nice to him and get your revenge. <laughs> I like that. I mean, if you ever have revenge on me, please be nice to me. Um, anyway, so, and there were also times when punishment, revenge was left solely to the Lord. Like when David had, could have killed Saul, but he chose not to. Or this story has always profoundly just engaged my, um, this is so cool whatever you call that, 2 Kings 2, 23 through 24. It tells of when some guys were mocking Elisha. Y'all know that story? Mm -hmm. And he called upon the Lord to deal with the rebels as he saw fit, not as Elisha saw fit. And then two female bears mauled about 42 of them. God's warning to all who scorn the prophets of the Lord. You might want to write that down. Next time you go scorning the prophet, <laughs> look out for the bears. Um, but, I mean, that is a profound warning. God takes seriously those he has called. So be careful who you're mocking. So we know that there is a time for everything. 
as shown in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, 1 through 8, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. We are always to look at warfare as in the spirit, but God didn't give us weapons and intend for us not to use them. What would have been the point of such detailed preparations and warnings if we were never expected to engage in warfare? Romans 12, 21 also says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Which makes perfect sense to me why the armor he gives us is representative of the goodness of God. Salvation, peace, righteousness, praise. If we were armored with this and we are battling for the Lord, if we are armored with revenge then we are battling in the flesh, and that makes us vulnerable to the enemy. We really need to pay attention to that because our flesh, flesh wants to act out. If I choose to forsake the instruction of the Lord on how to face warfare, then I choose to fight in the flesh and instead of the spirit. Christ conquered death in his holiness. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. While still being holy. We have to remember that the answers to resolve conflict are not found inside of us. But they are found inside of our almighty God. So quite recently, I've gone through a trial. Still going through it, to be honest. And I was wavering between my physical response to the enemy's attacks. And focusing on the Holy Spirit's direction and wisdom. My stubbornness, which I do tend to be a little stubborn, towards his will has caused me to be in the conflict a lot longer than I needed to be. But I can testify that when I've submitted my will and acted in obedience to his, that's when I've experienced breakthrough. And I realize that instead of looking around and begging God for what he's going to use to deliver me from this conflict, I finally realized he wanted to use me. Y'all, that's most of the time in our warfare. And we don't even realize it. We're expecting it to come out from who knows where. Expecting God be my defender. Well, step up to the plate. It's time. I want to use you. So how do we prepare for spiritual warfare? Well, the one thing that we see Paul asked for in Ephesians to do for him is to pray. Prayer is literally the specific method by which spiritual warfare is carried on. In Ephesians 6, 18 through 19. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful 
Do this then with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Although the scripture mentions this last in Ephesians 6 after the description of the full armor, it should be the first thing we do to prepare in spiritual warfare. To be able to hear from God, you have to be in communication with them. Michael, stand up for a minute. I gave him this shirt. I may have told him to wear it tonight. <laughs> and it says, turn around, show it off. Ain't it pretty? Okay. The devil saw me with my head down and thought he'd won until I said amen. <laughs> I love that. <clears throat> What's that? Okay, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Now, we're going to get into the full armor of God. You can't really talk about warfare, spiritual warfare without going there, right? So Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 gives us the description of the full armor of God to prepare for spiritual battle. You going to put that up or do you have it? Nice. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Just hold that thought. Is about to get it. I'm sorry. I thought all the scriptures were up there. I can't read. There it is. It's fine. Oh, look, Ephesians 6, right there. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Every single one of them. All means all. Right? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always again, with all prayer and supplication in this spirit, being watchful to this end with all the perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That's a lot to delve into. There's a lot of revelation in just that scriptures alone, so I encourage you all to delve into it on your own. But So we're going to break it down a little bit. A breastplate is usually a metal plate used as defensive armor for the breast, and in sports, it's the defense is when a team is trying to prevent the other team from scoring. So your breastplate of righteousness keeps the enemy from scoring. If we do not protect ourselves with righteousness, then we open ourselves up to attack from the enemy and can fall into sin. We are to live in obedience to God's commands. Now we know that strongholds are established in the mind, and that's where most of the battles take place, is in your mind. Salvation isn't just about future benefits. It's supposed to impact our present lives. The helmet of salvation protects your mind from the enemy's attack so you can focus on your identity in Christ. 
You were saved, made righteous, and holy. But the enemy's lies, he lies to affect your mind so he can affect your behavior. One of his main tools is to make you feel justified in your retaliation. His lies have infiltrated into our culture so much so that people can't differentiate if they're male or female or human or cats. Y'all, I, I can't wrap my head around that. I'm, a, I'm even scared to try to wrap my head around that. How many of you realize that we're accountable for what we know? If the Holy Spirit's revealed something to you, you're accountable for what you do with it. And when you choose not to follow God's commands and live in disobedience, especially as adults, we have to realize that our children are looking at us. We cannot support their rebellion and disobedience and think it's okay. I got scripture on that too. Hold on a second. <laughs> Matthew 18, 6. Warns us of making children stumble. Warning to those to allow their children and others and actually support them in their sin and rebellious behavior. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, little ones, we consider children, but it's also talking about Christians. Could be baby Christians. Whoever. it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Don't tell me you won't be accountable. We have to own that fact and stand up and give them truth that sets them free. We are called to fight with the belt of truth instead of manipulation. We should hold God's truth close to us so, so that we can distinguish what is true and what is untrue. When others are speaking lies and living in them, then we are to truth bomb them. The truth is what sets people free. Stop being, oh, I'm so scared they're going to get mad at me. Who cares if you're saving their life? John 8, 31 through 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, I can tell you revelation. The Bible can tell you revelation. Revelation can be, you know, revealed to you 24-7. But if you don't accept the truth, then it's not going to free you. A lot of us hear it. We just don't want to accept it. We got a lot of that going on in the church. We want what we want when we want it. And it doesn't matter that it's killing you. It doesn't matter that it's destroying your family. Let the truth just be that sword that the Bible says it is. And cut out all the rough edges around you. Rebuild your family with the truth. Rebuild your homes with the truth. Rebuild your schools with the truth. Rebuild our cities, our governments with the truth of God's word. We are called to wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. 
instead of flattering words. Flattery is not what saves people. So always be prepared to spread the gospel to people. What shoes are you wearing? What divine dictionary says the gospel itself is to be the firm footing of the believer. You won't lose your footing if you're wearing the shoes of peace. We are to guard ourselves with the shield of faith. Instead of worldly success and power, which are examples of what's opposite of truth, it's not of our doing, but it's through God we live and move and have our being, as stated in Acts 17, 28. It's up there. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. That's who we have our being in. Our faith can guard us during battles in the same way that a shield guards us. And the sword of the Spirit represents the Word of God. Oh, I love this part. This, the, mm. Anything the enemy's throwing at you, wield the Word of God. If Jesus did. And if Jesus did it, hello. <laughs> we certainly need to. So that is, where our, that, that is what we shield or should wield at the enemy. Sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even in the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a powerful weapon, people. And that's what we've got to use. Use it. How are these weapons used? So last week, Pastor Kyle was preaching, and he said something that triggered new revelation to me on this subject the topic of weapons of warfare. He said, we are the stones. Our stones need to be in alignment with the chief cornerstone. In 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Did I get that up there? No. So you're going to see the analogy of stones used in the rest of this message. So one of the main examples, and I love this story, and everybody knows it, every kid that's ever gone to church knows it, but this story has so much revelation that I have never heard before, and I've never realized before. It's the story of David and Goliath, found in Samuel 17. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with verses 1 through 16. If I can find 1 Samuel again. I had my pages here, y'all. I'm sorry. You know, if my books of the Bible didn't move around so much, I might be able to find something quicker. Okay, 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistine gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at... Now, I'm going to pretend I know what these, how to pronounce these words. Y'all just roll with it. At Sakah which belongs to Judah, they encamped between Zakah and Azekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion, which is the middleman, a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Goth whose height was about six cubits span, so his height was like nine feet, nine inches. He had a bronze, like the way I did that, his height. <laughs> he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of maul. So that's a jacket covered with metal rings or made of metal rings. 
And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and his shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was a son of that Ephrite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. There's a couple of things in those scriptures. Verse 11, they cowered a lot like the church does today. And in verse 16, the last verse, Goliath was a persistent dude. And so is your enemy. He will try to wear you out. So while digging into this passage, God revealed to me some key aspects that I've previously missed. First, God specifically handpicked David as the stone to take Goliath out. He arranged the whole thing. In verses 17 through 23, he says, Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of his dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand. And see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. I believe that's more like arguing with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army. He was excited to be there. And came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the middleman, the Philistine of Goth, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. In verse 20, David was obedient. And his obedience led him to where God wanted him. Your obedience, you want to be where God wants you to be? We all pray that, but is it true? Do you really want to be there? Because this led him exactly to where God wanted him to be. We don't always understand, maybe we don't even realize that we are strategically placed by God to be his weapon of warfare. We are the stones God handpicks and uses to take out the enemies when 
We are aligned with the chief cornerstone. David chose a sling and five smooth stones, but he only used one. David chose his weapon, but a weapon by itself is useless. It's powerless. The power was not in the sling, but in the one who sent him. A sling was used with great accuracy as a weapon of warfare back then. Imagine fighting back and forth with slings. In fun fact, the Benjamites were so accurate with their slingshots that they were able to split a hair. I mean, that's pretty accurate, people. Now, that's impressive. I mean, I'm impressed by it. I don't take that lightly, but clearly they had nothing, nothing else to do but hone their skills in, <laughs> in this. But we all got to have our giftings, right? So they have their gifting in, in this, and I'm impressed by it. I would not want to be um, one of the ones they were shooting at. So let's get into the authority. There is speculation on why David chose five smooth stones in case he had to take out Goliath's brothers as well. This is something I read that that may have been the case. But God also only wanted, needed one stone, and he chose David, an, un- an unlikely candidate to the Israelites anyway. He was a shepherd boy, not a fierce warrior to be reckoned with, or so they thought. In the physical, David chose a slingshot, but in the spiritual, he chose God's authority. You may not feel like the most likely candidate to be used by God in warfare, but if you're in alignment with God then you are suited up with his armor. David assessed the situation and did not act upon his authority, but he acted upon God's authority. And we don't normally like our authority to be challenged. In 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, Paul's tone, and don't worry, I'm not going to read those chapters. Paul's tone changes when he addresses those who challenge his authority in Corinth. And he rebuked the impure motives of those who sought to undermine his ministry in order to win personal followings. That's what the enemy does to us. He challenges our authority. It never ceases to amaze me that Satan goes to Jesus Christ. He knows who Jesus Christ is. And has so much pride that he challenges Jesus. Jesus. Haven't we done that? At some point in our lives, have we not challenged the authority of Jesus? We've been taught who he is, but a lot of times we think we know better. Satan knows exactly who Jesus Christ is, and he still challenged the Son of God, so you know he's going to challenge you and me. But he does it all based on lies and hope that you aren't wearing your belt of truth and helmet of salvation. So in weapon identification and looking into why those who actually still use slingshots prefer smooth stones, I found that the more spherical and balanced the ammo, the more accurate it's going to be. So a stream or riverbed tends to round things off due to all the tumbling, the constant tumbling it goes through. The reason you don't want jagged rocks is because they can damage the pouch in your hands along with tearing the bands. They are destructive to the one using them. Let that sink in just a minute. Do you want to be destructive to the one who's using you? Did I say destructive? Destructive. That's what I meant. If you're you're not ready for the battle, you might go into the enemy camp like a bull in a china shop. Wreaking havoc instead of victory, making the battle longer and harder. 
If we are the stone God uses, then how does he smooth us out? In John 7, 37 through 39, he says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will follow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would, be, would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, when we're talking about the riverbed and, and being tumbling through it, we're talking about the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Sorry, I lost my place again. Okay, by the river of living water, also known as the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's life-giving presence and power is working within Christ's followers, smoothing us out, aligning us to the chief cornerstone. He's smoothing out the jagged edges of religion, unforgiveness, sin in your life, bitterness, self-will instead of God's will, lost identity, offense, and the list goes on and on and on. He is smoothing out your jagged edges. Religion can instill the fear of man into you, and the enemy uses this as a tool to keep you paralyzed, unable to move in your calling and identity, and certainly in battle. There's literally, there literally isn't a battle if there's no one to battle. You don't show up, that means he won by forfeit. He just gained more territory. Verses 24 through 27 of 1 Samuel. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king, will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and his, give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love David. <laughs> he's just got so much authority about him and the people answered him in this manner saying so shall it be done for the man who kills him David demonstrated faith so what gave David so much confidence and faith that he was sure to conquer Goliath when all the Israelite soldiers were running in fear when they were too afraid to David had gone through some tumbling and smoothing out and he'd experienced and and had experience in God's trustworthiness and power to get him out of tough situations. While David was out fighting lions and bears, God was building faith and boldness in him. In verses 32 through 37, Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You were not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And, went and, and when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. 
Go, David. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Yay! (laughs) And he does. So in verse 33, the enemy will try to make you feel unqualified. He's going to challenge your authority. But remember, his goal is to control your mind, trying to strip you away from your true identity. The only way he can do that is if you let him. So here we are. David's ready to go to battle with Goliath. But Saul doesn't see David's armor. So he tries to suit David up with his armor. In 1 Samuel 17, 38 through 39... So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Saul tried to give David his armor, but it didn't fit. It was powerless and restricting David had not tested this armor, so he couldn't walk in it. He couldn't walk in fear and timidity. He couldn't walk in man's wisdom. He couldn't walk in false identity, bitterness, self-doubt. He couldn't walk in those things that were not of God because he had tested God's armor and was used to walking in it. He didn't need any other armor because he was already walking in the spirit, in righteousness, in truth, faith, peace. And if you know David, he had his garment of praise on. After that is when David chose his stones in verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistines. He chose the smooth stones. Not the jagged ones, for the reasons we talked about earlier. Then Goliath drew near to David and taunted him. Just like he was taunting the other Philistines in 41 through 44. So the Philistines came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. I don't know why that was added. (laughs) Okay. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, I come, to, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then Goliath drew near him and taunted him. See, Goliath's intention was instill fear into David like he did in Saul and the rest of his army. And that is your Goliath's intention. Goliath had already defeated the Israelites' army with fear alone. Goliath had already defeated the Israelite army with fear alone. He has already defeated you when you're living in fear. Remember, fear makes you vulnerable to the enemy. Victory and fear cannot intertwine. Fear has never been victorious over anything. In one of the commentaries I was reading, it says this is a significant strategy of the devil against believers. He will strike fear into you to keep you from ever going into battle. 
In 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says that as the spirit left Saul, so did his courage. But David had on his helmet of salvation. He was prepared for the enemy's assault of his mind, and that helmet protects the head, the mind, where strongholds are built and identifies whose army you're a part of. Most of the warfare you encounter is in your mind. The enemy's goal is to get you to doubt your salvation in an effort to discredit your identity in Christ. When a football team steps in the field, you can tell by their helmets whose team they are on. Helmets worn by legionaries and centurions had crests made of plumes of horsehair, which were usually dyed red. It was easy to identify these men in the midst of battle. Are you wearing the helmet of salvation? Does your helmet identify you as a warrior in the army of the Lord? Is it easy to identify whose team you're on? Your identity in Christ should go way beyond wearing a cross around your neck. Put your helmet on. In verse 45 through 47, David shows who his allegiance is to. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me. I love this verse, y'all. I just want to say it with so much boldness. <clears throat> then David said to the Philistines, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into, the, into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds in the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Man, he really gets into it. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and spear, but for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands, our hands. Woo! Go, David! That's how we need to read this. That's how we need to live this. Amen? Mm, 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 mm. His focus was on the reputation of Israel and the honor of the living God. David saw the problem in spiritual terms, not in fleshly or material terms. He wasn't after what they were, most of the Israelites were going to be after if they had enough guts to face Goliath. The men of Israel saw things only from man's perspective. David saw things from God's perspective. He uses his God-given authority to confront and discredit the enemy and ultimately bring down the giant. In 48 through, verses 48 through 51, I don't think we gave you that one, so I got it. Don't worry about it as soon as I find it. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David's running again. And then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead. That's a powerful stone. I mean, that had pretty, a lot of velocity behind that. And he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. <laughs> they fled. David's fearlessness in the face of the giant ripped apart any credibility the Israelites' fear had given to the enemy. 
As long as they were fearful, he could taunt them. But when he faced the fearless, the enemy had no power to stand against God's anointed. David's foundation was firm and solid. He wouldn't lose his footing. You have nothing to prove to the enemy. Jesus didn't. In Matthew 4, 5 through 7 and 10. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear up. Sorry, it keeps shifting and I have to check. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. You shall, you sh- and him only you shall serve. Sorry. Um, away with you, Satan. And the devil left. When your enemy's coming at you, away with you, Satan. This isn't your territory. This is God's territory. You are God's territory, by the way. You need to look at yourself that way when he's coming at you. You don't have to tolerate the enemy. Show him your authority. Be the stone in God's sling. God wants to slingshot us into territory that the enemy thinks he has authority over. Satan has bullied his way in and instilled fear into the church and into our schools and in government and even our homes. That's why God smooths his stones. He's got to get rid of the rough edges. Making sure when he places you in the sling, you're ready and you know where to penetrate. To knock the enemy out of what God meant for us to govern. The stone that hit Goliath penetrated his forehead. His mind, and it abolished all of the enemy's strongholds. His armor couldn't withstand the power of God's weapon. When God's, and you're his weapon, by the way. When God slingshots you into the enemy camp, he penetrates the darkness with his spirit, salvation, authority, truth, righteousness, peace, faith. He abolishes all of the enemy's strongholds. He lights it up like an atomic bomb going off. That's my God. Praise God. I brought some stones, some smooth stones, to hand out, actually, for y'all to come get in a minute. Now, this message came from God, leading me to the passage of David and Goliath. While I was trying to get through my own battle, I asked God, what stone was I to use against the giant I was dealing with? And I heard righteousness. Then I asked, well, what was David's stone? And I heard authority. And just like David, the stone I'm using is, just like David, the stone he's using is you. Walk in righteousness, and that will deliver you from your adversaries in the battle. We should walk in the full armor, but I felt like there was a specific characteristic of God that I was supposed to exemplify in this particular battle. And I was to lean into that, and that that would accelerate me into pulling down the stronghold in my life. And my stone was righteousness. So I want y'all to think about whatever 
warfare you may be going through currently. And if you're not going through one currently, my Bible says we're going to go through it. But yeah, hold on. And this stone is nothing but a reminder. It's got Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 on one side and weapons of warfare on the other. And all it you can use as a paperweight. I don't care. But all it is is a reminder that when you see it and you're going through something, I need to pray into this. What's the stone God wants to throw? What is he using in me that God needs to throw into enemy territory? Because you have been strategically placed wherever you're at. He wants to use you. You're the stone. And it's scary sometimes. But as you're going through life and you're depending on God the Father like David, you may be getting tossed and turned in the river, but he's cutting off those jagged edges so he can smooth you out and use you to penetrate where he needs you to penetrate. I'd like each of you to take one of these smooth stones when we end and let it be a reminder if you're going through a battle or when you do to stop and ask Holy Spirit to reveal to you what characteristic of Christ is going to propel you into victory over that particular battle and take down your Goliath. Pastor Kyle sent me something this afternoon. I wanted to use it on the PowerPoint. He says, no, the resolution's not good enough. So anyway, <laughs> we're not going to get to see it, but it says, and I'm going to end it with this and then invite y'all to come up. If God allows a Goliath in front of you, then he knows there is a David inside of you. Amen. Amen. So as we end this, it can be an altar call or it can just be you coming up to get your stone. I've got a basket here and a basket here with your stone. And if you want to use time to come up here and pray, And ask God, whatever warfare you're going through right now, what is that stone specifically that you want to use through me? Then you'll have people up here to pray with you, or you can pray by yourself, but the altar is open. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you are using us as your stone to penetrate the enemy's territory and take back what's yours. Take back what you have called us to govern Father, I pray right now that in the hearts and minds of everyone in here, that they've seen this message through the eyes of who you are and what the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal to them and not through the lens of religion or anything else that would keep them from seeing your truth and how you want to use them. In Jesus' name.